You're listening to Where We Are, a weekend conversation on faith, politics, family, and culture, hosted by me, Michael Ware, and my wife, Melissa. We bring our wide-ranging experiences in politics, ministry, and nonprofit life to bear as we discuss the issues of the day. On this week's episode, we'll be taking questions from you, dear listeners. This is Where We Are. Hello, hello. This is where we are. We are the wares. I'm Michael. I'm Melissa. Melissa, it's uh, it's one of my favorite, uh, probably my favorite kind of episode uh, listener questions from the audience. I'm excited uh, for the questions we have uh, we have today. Our listeners always send in send in good ones. Uh, but glad to be with you. Glad to be recording. Uh, uh, with you. I just got back from travel. I was in Atlanta, Chicago. Thankfully, I don't have to travel this coming week, and then it just kind of gets kind of gets crazy. But uh, we're here. We're here together now. We are. <laughs> it's where we are. Uh, yeah. I know. I was about to say, do the, the pun, but yeah. People have heard that from our mouths too many times. But do we want to get into it? Let's do it. Yeah, let's jump right into it. So our very first question is, what do you think about the new child poverty rate stats? Now, um, over the past few weeks, uh, the Census Bureau has come out with uh, new data on the supplemental poverty rate, which is a certain kind of way that you measure poverty. And it includes... um, the the influence of government assistance so the role of the government as well and so that's why it's called the supplemental poverty mechanism rate and for the child poverty numbers they're pretty staggering so in 2021 child poverty rate actually went to a record low of 5.2 percent and we're going to get in why it looked it looked like that but in 2022 that's our latest data it went from 5.2 percent to 12.4 percent so more than doubled, pretty deplorable number. So Michael, get into it. Why does it look that way? Yeah. So often, when you see um, when you're assessing something like the poverty rate, uh, it's uh, it can be difficult to come up with a simple explanation yeah something like poverty is multi-complex complex multi-causal and uh this is not one of those cases we know we know why the poverty rate looks the way it does uh now compared to last year and it's because congress let the extended expanded child tax credit benefits expire and i think this is particularly disheartening because um it is rarer than you would hope and maybe think that public policy has its intended effect. Uh, But the expansion of the child tax uh, uh, credit benefits is one of those things that that did have its intended effect. Uh, uh, it, It drastically reduced child poverty and like a, a functioning government, uh, you might say, 
would keep on doing what is uh, working and uh, stop doing what is not. But this is like one of those cases where, uh, where, uh, where they stopped doing what, what was working. Now, it's important to just say, right, President Biden wanted, first of all, it was President uh, Biden that, uh, you know, fought for the expanded, uh, the expanded uh, benefits along with Senator Cory Booker, Senator Michael Bennett in the House um, and uh, Democratic uh, leadership. Biden wanted the benefits uh, extended. And and in Congress, uh, Congress declined. Principally, Republicans. Like that's just that's just the, the the fact of of the matter. And so, yeah, these numbers are expected. They're also, you know, behind these statistics are people. Like these are these are children in poverty. <laughs> uh, and so, I, I'm you know disheartened. We've talked about this issue on the show before. We talked about the expansion of the um, of the of the child uh, tax benefits when they were first put in place we talked about them as Congress was uh, determining whether they would continue and so this is a sort of a new hobby horse for us we, we've followed these issues for quite a long time I think the last thing I'd say Melissa is one of the frustrating things out of this is just the cynicism of uh, folks acting like, you know, saying that this, this is happening. I'm, you know, the, uh, child poverty has uh, uh, risen on President Biden's watch without adding the context of, yeah, because the policy that he wanted to be put in place couldn't get through Congress, uh, and obviously, where we've criticized this isn't about criticizing Biden. It's it's uh, you 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 really can't, shouldn't. It's misleading to uh, uh, to talk about the child poverty rate rising without talking about uh, what the cause of it is, and and it's it's the fact that this policy was was not continued. Melissa, anything you'd add there? No, I, I'm not. I'm not going to add anything. Um, I, I think you've got it covered. So our second question is: Who will be at the top of both party tickets in 2028? Yeah. Well, what would what would you say, Melissa? Yeah. So I think one of the one of the more interesting threads that has it's not just permeating the conversation on the primary right now or on the you know the Democratic and GOP primary sides, but We've also seen it in Congress conversation around this, but it's age. And I'm loath to say that any sort of topic that is happening now in 2023 will be a driving factor in 2028, but we all know that the campaign will generally start around 2026. And one of the things that I think could carry over from what we're talking about now is this conversation around new blood, new faces, younger people, uh, running for anything, let alone president, but even in, in, in Congress. And so I think that age could be a factor for both parties, but probably more on the Democratic side. You've got Kamala Harris, who will most likely, you know, she, we should be talking about her when it comes to 2028. But the other person, if I were to pull out a crystal ball, 
would be, I'd say, somebody like Hakeem Jeffries, the minority leader in Congress, will be, I think, a factor in 2028. Yeah, no, I think that's... I think that's uh, that's right. I mean, I'll, I'll just so I think the age thing is is really smart. Um, I uh, because presidential elections are so often reactions to the previous presidential election. I tend to not look ahead to yeah. uh, beyond the you know the beyond the next election. So I don't really have uh, a ton of thoughts. You know, I do think. Buddha judge is someone who still is looking at a, a, a national future. Yeah, for sure. You know, mm-hmm. Gretchen Whitmer in mm-hmm. Michigan. She's someone who is clearly sort of eyeing, eyeing uh, uh, national office uh, on on the Republican side. You know, I just think it's going to be really um, so so much is going to be determined by. By not just who wins the nomination this year, but but how the general turns out. So, uh, but yeah, yeah, those are, those are good thoughts. Okay, and our next question is: What is Project Twenty Twenty Five? Yeah, so this is a really interesting one. Yeah, so I don't, uh, I, I I don't know. You know, I kind of wish that we had a, a call-in show so that I could ask some questions of of the person. Where did you hear it from? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Project 2025 is um, a conservative effort led, facilitated by the Heritage Foundation to basically provide a roadmap and infrastructure resources for what they hope would be an incoming Republican administration in 2025. Uh, this kind of thing is not new. Uh, this is what Heritage Foundation sort of exists for. It's what Center for American Progress on the left exists for. Uh, uh, it's why you, you know, that they, they, these organizations so often, you know, the people who, uh, work there often came out of uh, the administrations of, of 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 their their party, sort of their their side uh, of the aisle, and often uh, it, it, uh, these institutions are where senior staff uh, are drawn from uh, for incoming administrations. So, for instance, uh, Nira Tandon works in the White House right uh, right now. She she ran the Center for American Progress. Um, and so so it's not it's uh, this kind of thing is not new. Project 2025 though is um, at least presented as being uh, more robust, more explicit, more transparent than than some some previous efforts it's it's uh, heritage has something like 70 other conservative organizations that are a part of this uh, and I do think it's a reflection of um, conservative disappointments over the particularly the opening 
you know, six months of the Trump administration in 2016, uh, where they were slow to staff up. Uh, they felt like they left a lot on the uh, uh, sort of policy-wise uh, uh, unaccomplished. And so, so this is very explicitly an effort to give not just a playbook, but the, the players to run the place to, to an incoming administration. So, so that's, that's, what, that's what this is. Now, I will say, right, because it's so explicit, because it's so public, it's like an easy, it's an easy target uh, 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 for, for the left. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and so, so you know, I think you're going to hear quite quite a bit about it. It's also the last thing I'll say is it fills a void. Um, oh, that's right. The, the Republican uh, Party in 2020 did not have a platform. Yep. Uh, it's very possible they don't have a platform again in 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 2024. And so, you know, Project 2025. Part of it is. You know they they have these policy commitments that they're uh, you know gonna hold the incoming administration or or you know provide the administration with depending on sort of what kind of language you know like like uh, what the relationship is there but and so this is kind of a de facto you know if Republicans win the White House uh, this is one place to look for an idea of of what you can expect out of a Republican government because all the conservative organizations are sort of, uh, are, are behind this. I will say, and not just Project 2025, but I think, you know, these kinds of efforts, generally speaking, like when they happen on the, on the left too, Like what they're trying to say is like no matter what, no matter who wins the Republican primary, they are there to implement a conservative agenda, which to me like kind of uh, undermines the point of having a primary, undermines you know, le- you know leadership. So I, I am kind of um, this sort of administration in waiting kind of kind of thing this i'm a little uh, i'm i'm uh, discomforted uh, uh, by it i guess though i i don't i don't think there's necessarily a solution for it that's interesting that you that last comment you just made because one of the things that i thought when we opened up the website and i was just reading through the various bits but i immediately was drawn to the partners and on the website it's 70 of the most major conservative Think tanks, nonprofits, advocacy organizations out there. And I thought to myself, well, this is really interesting in terms of like, I also uh, was not comfortable as well with the administration in waiting part. But then for a GOP that's been really fractured since Donald Trump, um, you know, rose up where you've had like a, a few different factions and honestly, since the Tea Party really, uh, came about that it's just really interesting from a unity standpoint. Obviously, it's not every single conservative advocacy organization out there, but it's pretty much the most powerful ones oh, yeah, that yeah, have the most influence sure. and the most yeah. money. 
And so for a party that's been thirsting for some kind of unity, you kind of get it with this uh, administration in waiting. So I mean, especially right to the extent that they can extract... Uh, and the, right, the whole point of this is to extract commitments uh, and use... Yes. To sort of have this frame the 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 primary so so have the candidates endorse project 2025 uh yep. or be clear about exactly what they disagree with and and sort of set the terms not just for an incoming administration but obviously to influence you know the the, the primary as it as it plays out mm-hmm. yeah that's right so our next question is a grouping of questions because we actually receive questions quite often around parenting because if you're not a longtime listener, you should know that Michael and I are parents to two toddlers. And so in a lot of ways, these questions come, come out of that. So what has major toddler cry this week? What are our thoughts on gentle parenting and how do we handle discipline for defiant toddlers? Now, in terms of making our to- what has made our toddlers cry this week, my question then is, what has not made them cry? <laughs> <laughs> um, they are two and four, and therefore, uh, they're both in different stages of toddlerdom for absolute certainty. And with their crying comes different complexities. But, you know, for example, we started school in the last two weeks, so there's been a lot of gnashing of teeth over school shoes, over which kind are being worn and how they fit and uh, how quickly I am getting them on. (laughs) And I mean, you know, there have been, there's been a lot of crying this week over in Baltimore ice or snowballs, snow cones. I mean, in Buffalo, we grew up with them being called snow cones, but here in Baltimore is uh, there's snowball and ice places that pop up in the summer and usually stay open in September where, well, one of our toddlers is very obsessed with it. And there was a lot of crying over whether or not we could go and get ice this week. But um, Michael, definitely we have thoughts on gentle parenting. And if you want to jump in. I mean, right. Like to the extent that like, um, you know, I think a lot of things get called gentle parenting. And not really sure if it is. And not really sure if it is. You, you know, like, so, um, you know, I, I think I'm, I'm, um, you never know if you're critiquing a caricature or the real thing. Yes. You know, I think children need boundaries. Uh, I think, uh, I think, uh, I think a sort of uh, child-directed family life does not work as a uh, as a constant. Like I, th- I think, I think children um, uh, uh, can't can't. Uh, can't direct things all of the time uh and so you know to the extent that that a gentle parenting sort of um uh sort of uh means that uh you're 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 not um uh 
that some things aren't happening, uh, then, then I'm opposed uh, to the extent that it's a reaction to uh, sort of a, a, a harsh, cold, uh, unemotional parenting. And right, I, I think that's the main thing I'd say. So many of these parenting trends are driven by people just reacting to the childhood they had or the childhood yes. they feel that they had. And so, you know, I think I think that's that's part of why we have, you know, this whole conversation, this whole conversation now. But yeah, Melissa, do you have any yeah, any thoughts on gentle parenting? I mean, if if gentle parenting means that you know, uh, we're helping our kids learn that emotions are part of life and part of the human experience and part of how we process the world, then yes, we're gentle parents, like helping them cope with all of the bad things and the upsetting things and the uncomfortable things in life. Yes. I'm constantly, I've tweeted about this before and it was actually a pretty popular tweet where I'm constantly apologizing to either of my toddlers for losing my own cool when I'm asking them to not lose their cool and to emotionally regulate. I've discovered in parenting that I actually need a lot of tools and a lot of help in that area. Um, so, you know, there are certain things that, you know, Michael and I absolutely believe in and probably are part of that school of thought or trend. Um, and then like the whole limit setting, boundary setting, we definitely have rules. We definitely have red lines. Um, I, I think that actually goes more towards like another philosophy, but here's the thing that I just want to mention with, with this question, because Michael, I think it was two or three days ago on Instagram, you sent me a post by one of the bay. There's, there are many, many parenting accounts on Instagram, especially where, what they do is they provide information on a lot of these different parenting philosophies and techniques and trends or like, you know, how to, you know, how to do discipline with your defiant toddler, which is the last question for us. Or, you know, uh, how do you get through potty training? Like, you know, basic stuff as well. But this parenting account put out a new study that says that the more information that parents have about parenting and how to do parenting, the less secure they feel in their parenting and the more anxiety they feel around their parenting. And I thought it was just really funny that a parenting account that makes money off of providing a ton of information, bravely sharing the, uh-oh, if you have too much information, you're probably actually feeling pretty poorly about how much good of a parent you are. I thought that was interesting, but also definitely I resonated with it immediately because I, Michael and I have often talked about it that it's not just parenting trends, which have been there for quite a while. I mean, you go and ask your own parents and, you know, they'll tell you about the trends that they had and the different bits of advice that they were receiving when they were raising us, um, whether or not you're a millennial or Gen X or, or, or um, Gen Z, um, is that we have more and more information available to us than ever. And a lot of people with the interest of making money off of our anxieties that uh, I have felt like I know too much sometimes and I have found that I have been worrying over very, very small order things with my kids because I have, have read a post or I've heard some or I've read some bit of advice in a book and I have found it to be very distracting and I have definitely lowered my consumption of, again, for example, like Instagram type accounts in, in this way 
and I have felt a lot better about my parenting from sort of cutting myself off in that way and trying to concentrate on more um, naturally parenting our two kids with, you know, trial, which is basically trial and error with discovering what it is that makes them tick and what it is that helps them to emotionally regulate. And so how we handle discipline for defined toddlers, the first thing I want to say is that with the two-year-old, and Michael, you've always said this with a two-year-old, there is no disciplining a two-year-old. Two-year-olds are just at the beginning of their toddlerhood and just at the beginning of being ridiculously irrational and having basically no hand-eye coordination. So um, they are trying to assert their independence and their dominance, and it's basically a lot of redirecting with a two-year-old. And then with the four-year-olds, you know, I don't say, I don't think we've actually figured it out yet, but we have a few different techniques like taking a minute or um, spending some time in our, you know, a couple of minutes in our room if we're really out of control um, and just to go to a space that's different than the one that we're in where we are losing control. Um, natural consequences, but I don't think we have a set answer here, Michael. Yeah, there's not like a discipline regimen because, uh, again, they're... They're, they're going to do what they're going to do. They're toddlers. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, so the next question, what is Michael's favorite chapter in the new book and my favorite chapter? And so for those who don't know, Michael's a brand new book called The Spirit of Our Politics coming out in January 2024. It is fantastic, but you have not released a lot of information about the contents of the book. So how how revealing do you want to go here, Michael? Yeah, so not very. Uh, <laughs> okay. I, I I think um, I think what I'm prepared to say uh, is this, which is um, we will announce the chapters for the first time uh, on this podcast. So in the coming weeks, I will read. Uh, we'll, we'll read the the chapter titles uh, here on where we are. Um, the book comes out in just over four months, so January 23rd. So more information will be coming, but but yeah, I think in the next in the next few weeks we'll we'll do that. But uh, yeah. Can I at least say which number? Sure. Okay, my favorite chapter is chapter six, which will mean not a lot to people, but I will tell you that Michael in the writing process, the first five chapters were just a huge slog because basically you were coming up with a, you were taking a lot of the problems that we're facing in our politics and you're coming up with a bunch of concepts, especially because this book is based on Dallas Willard's teachings and thoughts. And so you took, you know, his writing, his thoughts, and you apply, you're applying them to politics. You're basically creating a good handful of brand new concepts that I haven't read anywhere else, but chapter six is kind of like, okay, what do we actually do? What will the world actually, well, the world meaning more like American politics, what will that actually look like if we put some of these concepts and this way of thinking into place? And you wrote that chapter pretty darn quickly, even though you had been so nervous about it because you knew it was just like the climax of the thesis of your efforts, but you barely had to edit this chapter because it was just... You have everything so locked down tight. It's just a really good chapter. Yeah, I spent so much time thinking about that chapter that when I finally like was able to get myself to sit down and write it, uh, yeah, it was it was it was all there. So, 
So yeah, chapter six, and in the next few weeks, you'll know uh, you'll know what that chapter is. <laughs> <laughs> We're such teases. Yeah. Uh, okay, so what is a song that we can't stop listening to? Gosh, my musical taste. Uh, it's all over the place. All over the place, but also just like you know, songs I can't help, uh, I can't stop listening to, are like at best. 25 years old, <laughs> 20 years old, uh, usually uh, 60, 70 years old. Uh, and so, you know, for me, it's like uh, uh, Me and Those Dreaming Eyes of Mine by D'Angelo. Can't stop playing that. I can't stop playing um, uh, uh, Maxwell. Uh there are two new songs. So there's this, there's a singer-songwriter, Katie McLeod, uh, Katie Grayson McLeod, I think. Uh, uh, she has a song called Complex. You love that song. And I just think it's a great song. I'm not a big singer-songwriter guy, but this, this, yeah, I really appreciate that. And then there's this, uh, there's this, a singer musician Haley Knox that has a new song called Future Me and I just think the concept of the song is just so smart and so well executed um and I just think she's a talent uh so so yeah those those would be those would be two if if I'm going to try and like be with it and uh, <laughs> be up to the times those those would be those would be two yeah so I I have always loved pop music, like really good, basic bubblegum pop music. I did have like a millennial emo streak, and I've always loved classical and soundtracks as well. So I'll give you three songs. In the in the bubblegum pop um, category, I love most pop music that comes out of the Nordic countries. So there's two singers. One's named Dagny, and she's Norwegian, and her song Brightsider has been on repeat on Spotify to the point where it's probably going to make my Spotify top 100. It might be end up being the number one song, but Brightsider is like the perfect summer song if I could ever write one myself. And then Winona Oak is a Swedish singer-songwriter, and her song Baby Blue has been on repeat for about a year now. I cannot stop listening to it. Both of them are just really well done pop. And then ever since we saw Oppenheimer, I've been listening to the one song called... Um, uh, can you can you hear the music? And it's like the most famous one that has come out of the movie so far. It's only like two minutes. And apparently the composer changes rhythms around 20-something times in the song. And yes, you can tell, and it's really intense. I think it's a gorgeous piece. And so I've been playing that on Spotify as well. All right. So how much pasta do we eat in a week? And is there any good gluten-free pasta? We've gotten the gluten-free pasta question before, but we'll always answer it. I think Bonza brand, which is chickpea pasta, the Cavatappi, because it's a nice substantial pasta, can take the weight of having no gluten. Um, I think it's good. I think it's pretty well done. Yeah, sure. And then how, how many times a week do we eat pasta? Yeah, I mean, probably not as often uh, as folks would think, given that we do a monthly pasta ranking on our, on our podcast. Uh, but yeah, maybe like, Two or three times, you know, I think yeah. the girls love mac, like box mac and cheese. We'll do like a pantry pasta once every uh, like week or 10 days. 
Um, and then, you know, I do like meals that create leftovers that have um, like pasta as a course. And we've talked about this on, on, on the show before. But so, so usually there'll be like a very simple pasta uh, like like mac and cheese, there'll be like a a middle ground, and then especially if I have time to like really cook that week, will um, a more more complex uh, pasta that takes takes more time. Okay, so what is our favorite bottle of wine under fifty dollars? So it's such an interesting question because most of the wine that we drink is like under twenty five. Mm-hmm. Yes. Um. And honestly, my answer for under 50 and under 25 is the same. So Michele Chiarlo, which is a a maker out of the Piedmont region of Italy, they have a great Barbera value wine. Usually can get it for like 18 bucks. It's fantastic. I love it. I always have have it uh, at home. And so Chiarlo... Chiarlo's Barbera is great. Look at Chiarlo generally, though. They make a great Moscato. I'm not a Moscato guy, but they make they make a wonderful Moscato. So they're they're fantastic. Yeah. So I'm I'm not a big drinker. I, I rarely drink alcohol, and I actually don't like wine, which is wild being married to Michael because you just love Italian wines. Uh, but there is an Italian rosé that my friend introduced me to over the last year. It's from a brand new vineyard called Montestigliano, and this rosé is delicious. And you can buy it directly from Montestigliano's website because it's not really sold here in the U.S. yet because it is so brand new. But you can buy three bottles in a package, and they're 23 euros each. So, you know, a little bit of a nicer rosé compared to, you know, I mean, Michael and I, we tend to buy like $6 rosés, but it's it's fantastic. Like, can definitely compete with French rosés for sure, I, I would say. But our final question also related to our favorite drink. So what is our go-to bourbon-based cocktail? Yeah, I mean, uh, I don't have anything like an old-fashioned. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, I'm an old-fashioned guy. Yeah, you like Manhattans too. Uh, Yeah, sure. But I always love eating the cherries that come with your Manhattans. I like like when you order Manhattans over old-fashions because I really like the... The yeah. cherries and the syrup that come with it. I will say I have been making like my own at home bourbon cocktails, and oh, I do yeah. like bourbon with a little bit of like um, like walnut liquor. Yes. Um, and so I I have I have been doing that. Yeah. I do because I'm if I'm going to have a spirit, I'm going to have gin. But if I already have a bourbon based cocktail, I. I really like amaretto and amaretto sours I think are delicious and I think amaretto sours are actually made better when they're made with bourbon as as along with the amaretto in it. So a bourbon based amaretto sour I think is actually really tasty. I think it's a good fall drink too actually. Yeah. Now that I think about it. Uh, well, well, and I'll just uh I do like putting a little bourbon in with apple cider. And oh, so you we do are, love that. When we, we get the fresh getting... apple cider. Oh, you're going to have that soon. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, well, that's good. Good questions this episode. Really grateful for our listeners. Yes. Uh, and we, we made we made good progress on them. But 
I think that's it for for this week. That is it. And uh, debate is not this week, but the week after. Yep, soon in California. And so we'll we'll have the next debate in the Republican primary, and uh, and yeah, we'll see what we'll see what uh, we'll see what this week holds in the news. But we'll be with you as always for the morning five uh, throughout the week, and then um, and then I'm excited. We have some guests coming up on the podcast uh, in future episodes, mm-hmm. and and should be good. But yeah, uh, that's all for now. Thanks for listening. Bye.